Well, hello everybody in Mafra. Uh, I'm very sorry I can't be with you today. Uh, obviously, that was our plan, uh, but plans changed at about midday yesterday, so we're doing it this way again, and I trust it won't be too long before I can be with you in person, because I am looking forward to that and uh, continuing our fellowship. But um, let's uh, let's uh, consider God's Word today, and in particular Psalm 21, and as we do that, uh, let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that you would open our minds to understand the Scriptures, uh, that we may learn everything written down about the Lord Jesus in the Psalms. So uh, please guide us, we pray, by your Spirit uh, and reveal to us uh, the glory of your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series on the Psalms, and uh, Psalm 21 is really the sequel to Psalm 20 that David preached for you last week. So I've entitled my talk today, Prayer in the Day of Trouble, because that's what Psalm 20 is about. Uh, praise for the Day of Salvation, because that's where Psalm 21 ends up. Uh, I hope you've had a look at uh, the other readings I suggested, Deuteronomy 17, about uh, God's instructions for Israel's king, and then also 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, which we'll think about in a little while. But the relationship of Psalm 20 and 21 is fairly clear when you look at the kinds of words that are used, uh, and you can see how Psalm 21 is the answer to Psalm 20. So Psalm 21 is effectively a, a psalm of praise for Yahweh's answer to the prayer of Psalm 20. So Psalm 20 begins, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So it's a prayer, a prayer prayed and in times of peril. Now it's a, a prayer for protection. That's the kind of prayer we often pray, isn't it? Uh, I know a fellow who whenever he sets out, whenever he sets out, from home in his car he always prays that God he stops for a moment and prays that God will protect him well in this case it's not uh, travel that's being asked for uh, the protection for uh, the protection is for Yahweh's anointed and that's another way of saying the king so verse 6 of Psalm 20 makes it quite clear that this is a prayer that the people of Israel are praying that their king the anointed of God will be protected well where's the protection uh, it's in a battle. So the language that's used in verse 7 and following, it makes it quite clear that uh, they're asking that their king be protected in a battle. And the kind of protection that they're asking for is that his life be preserved. Uh, they want him to be victorious in this battle because the king is the representative. He's not going to fight it on his own. He's the representative. He's the head of Israel's armies. So they're asking, in effect, that Israel's armies be successful and that the king's life as their figurehead be spared. And that, to them, is salvation. They want God to save them. Yahweh, their covenant God, to save them from this peril. So Psalm 21 is a look back to the peril and to the answers that Yahweh has offered to the prayers that they prayed. And so the first seven verses in particular are this look back where they're offering praise. Now Yahweh has shown himself as to be a God of strength. So verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. Now Psalm 21 begins and ends with exclamations of Yahweh's strength. Look at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So God is celebrated as a God of strength and of power. And it's this strength and power that is his saving effect in the lives of his people. Now, just as they had promised that they would praise Yahweh 
if he answered their prayer as they desired in, in Psalm 20 verse 5, so their praise is now forthcoming. And what we read here in Psalm 21 is a psalm of rejoicing. Now it was written by David as we see from the superscription, but we'll learn in just a while that David furnished many of the psalms for Israel to make public its praises of Yahweh. And so what we find here is Israel is rejoicing at the king's victory, which has been granted in response to their prayers. Now verse 2 refers to the desires of the king's heart. It acknowledges that, that Yahweh has granted him his heart's desire. And again, that's a reminder because that was the particular request that was made in Psalm 20. And that's another strong link between the two Psalms. In Psalm 20, he was desiring Yahweh's salvation and now he's experienced it. Effectively, to, to, say, uh, to speak of the, the desire of the hearts means to acknowledge that the king wants what God wants. And there's a good example to us all. We need to tune our wills into the will of God because that is the basis on which we should be praying. Well, verse 3 goes on and it says, You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. This speaks of the reward following the battle victory. Uh, it was the common custom back in those days that when one king fought another king, when, when their armies met and clashed, uh, the victory would be symbolised by taking the, the crown of the defeated king and crowning the victorious king with that. So we read something like that in 2 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, where the king of Rabbah is defeated, his crown is taken, and it's placed on the head of King David because his forces have been victorious there that day. So this is God meeting David or meeting the king after the battle victory, and he is crowned. Uh, with the crown of victory. So the victory is granted. We read of that in verse 4. Uh, his life has been spared. And in verse 5, the, the fact that his life has been spared is taken to be God's salvation. He's been saved. And that salvation, we read in verse 7, is grounded in Yahweh's steadfast love. Now, whenever we read that phrase, steadfast love, that's how the English Standard Version translates it. Throughout the Bible, uh, we meet it famously in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where Moses has a revelation of Yahweh. And it, it is meant, it's a code for us. It's meant to remind us that this is the characteristic of the God who makes covenant with his people Israel. So when you read of God's steadfast love, it's meant to remind you of Exodus 34, verse 6. It's meant to remind you of, of his covenant promises. And so it's because of God's steadfast love, the steadfast love of Yahweh, uh, that the king has achieved this triumph in the strength that Yahweh provides. Now that word steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hesed. It's a beautiful word. It's a rich word. It's translated in a number of different ways in our English translations, and all of them are good because this is such a rich word that it's almost impossible to completely capture it in one word. So the, the English standard version that I'm preaching from refers to Yahweh's steadfast love, but the NIV speaks of his faithful love, and other translations translate it loving kindness or mercy. Well, the New Testament equivalent of hesed, of steadfast love, is God's grace. It's God's unmerited favour for those who become his people by covenant. So when we become covenant children of God, as we uh, pledge ourselves to him, as we turn from our sins and put our trust in the Lord Jesus, then we, we're saved by his grace. 
And it's that idea that lies behind steadfast love. God is a God of mercy who chose Israel. He entered into a covenant with them as his people. And it's because he's faithful to the covenant that the king has triumphed in answer to the people's prayers. And so we can say in looking at these seven verses here that Israel's God is a God of strength, a God of awesome, victorious power, but a God also of covenant love, a God of steadfast love. So verses 8 to 12 turn from looking back to the answer to the prayer and now they cast an eye forward. They're looking ahead because of the accomplishment of God in answering his people's prayers and granting victory, the people now look to the future, confident that those victories will continue. Now, these verses 8 to 12, we could wonder, are these expressed to God? Notice that the language has changed here. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. And so it goes. Now, in speaking in the second person, speaking of you and your, is this praise addressed to the king because Israel's so confident that the king as their champion, as their military leader, will be able to accomplish victories in the name of Yahweh? Or is this expressed directly of Yahweh himself? Well, some commentators say one, some commentators say the other. Uh, and in a sense, it doesn't really matter because we know we've already seen in the Psalms from Psalm 2 that there's a very strong correspondence between Yahweh and his anointed king. And so to oppose Yahweh, to oppose God, is to oppose his king. To oppose his king is to oppose God. Uh, there's a very close correspondence between Yahweh and his king because Yahweh rules on earth through his anointed, through his king. But if it is that these words are addressed to the king, we might look at them and ask, well, when has this ever been the case? When has it ever been the case that Israel's king will find and crush all his enemies, uh, treat them as though he's consuming them in a blazing oven so that they just completely disappear, so that Israel, God's people by covenant, live in unchallenged, uncompromised peace? When has that ever been the case? And yet these words were written by King David, and they are expected to be sung by God's people, and they have continued to be sung. But we could look at them and wonder, well, are they really true? Or is this exaggeration? Is this sort of an out, outburst of national pride because they've had a battle victory? Uh, are they telling the truth here, or are they ex engaging in, in hyperbole, in hype, in, in uh, linguistic overreach? Are they going too far? when they make these claims and expect these things to be the case. Now, this is a challenge for us because here we are, we're in the 21st century. We're a long way removed from Israel and the, the challenges of being in that particular land at that particular time, surrounded by enemy forces, looking to the king to, uh, with God's strength to provide military security and, and success. We could look at these words and say, how can we make them ours? And yet we're expected to. These psalms are in the scripture, all 150 of them, and they're, they're, they're songs that were once sung by God's people. We've lost the tunes, but we have the words, and they become our prayers. These are God's word to us. So how can we make these our own? How can we sing of Israel's king? Uh, these are good questions to ask. And I, 
I've been turning it over in my mind. And, um, you know, some of you might know that I've had an interest in singing in public for a fair while. Uh, I've been singing, you know, with duos and trios and bands and things for, for many, many years now. It's been a, a great um, source of, of joy to me. I hope at least a few others have enjoyed it too. But, uh, but I've been performing music for a long time. And I, I fell into it almost by accident, actually. I'd been learning the guitar. Uh, I knew enough to be able to play a few things. There was a youth group function at somebody's house and there were two guitars sitting in the corner. And there was another kid there who was a much better guitarist than me. And uh, we just sat down and he showed me a few things and we started to play. And as we played, a little crowd gathered and, and all these kids started sitting around and uh, it seemed that they expected us to do something. Now, I knew a few words of a few songs and I started to sing and they listened and I thought, well, this is a good deal. Um, now, I've never been able to make any money at it, but there have been times when people have sat and listened and it's been good fun. And so one thing led to another and I started playing with this person and that person. Well, I started to get into bands and so on. But then the challenge is, well, what will you sing? And... Uh, because when you sing a song, it's kind of an expression of who you are. So unless you're just acting the part and it doesn't really worry you, to be authentic, to, to sing a song, you have to have some sort of identification with it. And there's a lot of songs which, as a Christian, I couldn't sing, but there's a lot of songs which were okay, but as an Australian, I couldn't sing them. So I really liked Johnny Cash when I was starting out. I loved the fact that he could write a song that was rich in stories. He'd have stories about people and, and places, exotic sounding names like Nashville, Tennessee and, and so on, the Mason-Dixon line. And I loved his song, Hey Porter, but I could never sing it because I've never been south of the Mason-Dixon line. I've never got off a train and, and breathed the southern air, as the song says. I just, it's not my experience. So I've never sung that except in the car. Um, I've certainly never sung it in public because I don't identify with it. I like it but I don't identify with it. Now, this is all a way of saying, how can we sing and identify with a song written by, by Israel's king for God's people in Israel about battle victories and all these things? How can we sing them and identify with them? Well, I've found it very helpful this uh, last little while. I've been reading a book by Christopher Ashe uh, called Teaching the Psalms, and I thoroughly recommend it. It's a great book. It's a book that I've needed to go over a couple of times, and I, I think I'm starting to get there. But the next little section of this talk, I'm basing pretty solidly on some ideas that I've picked up from Christopher Ashe. So if you are to read the book, you'll see where I've, I've pinched them from. Uh, but I trust that, well, they've helped me. And I hope that I'll be able to explain them sufficiently clearly that they might help you. Uh, so bear with me, follow along. Um, you might even want to turn your Bible up to some of these. They're all on the outline that I've uh, sent down. So I hope that you'll be able to follow along. But we need to think about what kingship in Israel meant if we're to get to the bottom of this psalm and how it relates to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, hopefully you've had a look at that, but... Uh, Israel is giving instructions in the book of Deuteronomy about how they're to live when they come into the promised land. And amongst the instructions that God gives them through his servant Moses is what they're to do when they want to have a king. And so there's a range of things, but included amongst them in Deuteronomy 17 and at verse 17, uh, we read that when he takes the, the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the, that of the Levitical priests. So the king had to, in his own hand, write his own copy of the law. 
It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the right or to the left. So he wasn't just to write it out. He was to pay careful attention to it. He had to read it and read it and read it every day to make sure that he conformed his life and his rule to the law of God. He was to set an example to the people of Israel as being the first in the nation to keep God's law. And then there's a promise at the end. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom Israel. Now, just bear in mind that phrase, reign a long time. This is a conditional promise. If the king is a careful daily observer of God's law, then he can expect a long reign. Conversely, if he's not diligent in looking at and studying and keeping God's law, he can't. It's a conditional promise. But what this means in the context of the book of Psalms, we've seen in Psalm 1, when I preached there back in January, and then Psalm 2, Psalm 1 speaks about um, the man that God, or the person that God will bless, a person who delights in God's law. Psalm 2 speaks of God's intention to reign through his anointed, who he set on Zion, his holy hill. And, and Israel's king, we, we see in Psalm 2, is actually the world's true ruler because God has chosen Israel to be his people. And the king is the, the king of God's kingdom. What we can do when we put these together with Deuteronomy 17, we, we, we say that Psalm 2's king must be a Psalm 1 man. He has to delight in the law, and we have it quite clearly in Deuteronomy 17. So the king must be a diligent student and a keen observer of God's law in his day-to-day -day actions. Moving on, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. So the people are in the promised land. They've been ruled by a succession of judges, but that's not good enough for them. They say, no, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And they put their request to the prophet Samuel. Now Samuel said, well, actually, Yahweh is your true king. And they said, no, no, we want a king to be like the nations. So we find in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's reply uh, to them. And then the people say to him, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Notice that, fight our battles. The king is the figurehead. He's the one who fights their battles. We find an illustration of that, uh, both in the positive and the negative, in 1 Samuel 17, because that's the story of David and Goliath. Nobody else wanted to take on the Philistine champion Goliath, but young David, sent from home with some food by his father to, uh, to outfit his brothers who were at the front line, David says, well, I trust in God. He's helped me in my battles when I've been looking after the sheep. I'll take this fella on. Uh, and he shows there that he's superior to King Saul. King Saul won't go out and take on the champion who's defying not only Israel's armies, but the God of Israel himself. And so David goes out and he's an illustration of what a king should be, fighting the battles for the nations. And so we find in 1 Samuel 18, uh, a, a summary of the praise that Israel gave to David. 1 Samuel 18, verse 16, All Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. In other words, he behaves like a true king in battle. So Israel's king needs to be the champion and the representative of God's people, going out ahead of them 
in their battles. And we find some of that in Psalm 21. Well, 2 Samuel 23, moving on, verses 1 and 2, we get to the end of David's life. Um, if you read the books of Samuel, if you read the early part of the book of Kings, you'll read about David's life and the kind of person he was with all of his ups and downs, with his triumphs and his failures. But he was still the greatest king Israel ever had. 2 Samuel 23 verses 1 and 2 summarise to an extent his life. And we read, now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David wasn't just Israel's leader militarily. He wasn't just to be their figurehead in battle. He was meant to be the one who organized Israel's worship as the king, as the, the representative of God's people on earth. He had a special responsibility for made, making sure that they related to God rightly. When it says there, the sweet psalmist of Israel, another way of saying that would be the singer of Israel's songs. He wrote many of Israel's psalms. He provided the material by which Israel would draw near to its God in worship. But as well as that, he took a role in coordinating how that worship was to be offered to God. And so we read in 1 Chronicles 25 verse 2 that the musicians in the temple operated under the direction of the king. He had appointed carefully people who he knew would do a good job and, and they were there under the direction of the king. So we put all of these things together and we can say that David was more than just a, a figurehead in battle. He was more than just a military commander and the nation's champion. He was the prophetic and priestly provider of Israel's songs. Uh, he had a role in Israel's worship as well. All of these things need to be borne in mind when we think about Israel's king. Now, moving to the New Testament, it's a bit of a leap, but this is really, really important, so stay with me, please. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking about the nature of the scriptures and how God has revealed himself. And when Peter and Paul and the other New Testament writers speak of the scriptures, they chiefly mean the old, what we call the Old Testament. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, the Apostle Peter writes this, The prophets, that's all the people who, who wrote with the inspiration of the Spirit, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves but you. So how did the prophets, according to Peter, write? According to the Spirit of Christ. So if you think about what we know of God from the whole testimony of the Bible, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Each of those three persons has always existed in eternity. Uh, there was a particular moment in history when God the Son became the Son of God, became Jesus. He was God incarnate, born in the flesh. But from all eternity, there has existed God the Word, the Word who became flesh. And God the Word spoke by the, the Spirit, and it, it's the Spirit of Christ speaking to prophets like David. Now, David has been described in Second uh, Samuel 23 as speaking an oracle. He's prophesying. And so how did he do it? He did it with the Spirit of Christ. And so David, we can say, more than a king, more than a military leader, he's also a prophet who, by the Spirit of Christ, 
spoke of a king greater than he himself. And it's that king that we meet in Psalm 21. Look at verses, 20, uh, verses 4 to 7 of Psalm 21 again. Uh, king David's words, but speaking of a greater king than he could possibly be. Verse 4, he asked of you life, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Who's ever lived forever? David didn't. Verse 6, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now David here is speaking of more than survival in battle, which is what the prayer of Psalm 20 was. There's much more going on here than just someone making it through a battle unscathed. What we're reading about here is the blessings of Deuteronomy 17 and Psalm 1. We're reading here of someone who has been blessed by God, with length of days, and, and to be blessed by God with length of days, according to Deuteronomy 17, required daily adherence to God's law. We read that in Psalm 1. Well, could that really be said of David? David was a man with compromised character. Very often, he, he often disobeyed God. We know that. And it's a sign, again, that God doesn't choose people because they're good. He uses them because he's promised to use people and because his promises will never fail. But those things couldn't honestly be said completely of David unless he's exaggerating or telling lies. He's saying things beyond his own experience. Well, when Jesus explained his relationship to the Old Testament, to his disciples after he was raised from the dead, he took them aside. There's two instances of this in Luke 24. We'll just look at the second one quickly. But in Luke 24, uh, he meets with his disciples locked away um, after his crucifixion, well, he's raised now and he meets with them. And in Luke 24, verses 44 to 45, really important words for understanding the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how the, the Old Testament is the foundation and the New Testament is the fulfillment. The Old Testament uh, looks ahead to all that will be accomplished and fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus gives us these words by which we need to understand what, Luke, what, what the Old Testament is about. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Jesus taught his apostles that really the Old Testament is about him, what we call the Old Testament, including Psalm 21. Psalm 21 written by David in a human sense, but under the inspiration who of? the Spirit of Christ, according to 1 Peter. Jesus teaches his disciples that every part of the Old Testament, they were the three major divisions, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Every one of the Psalms is really about the Lord Jesus. So going back over the role of the king, the king was the people's representative and he was their champion in battle, but also in worship. Now we see echoes of this in our own world. Uh, when the Second World War was over, obviously uh, there were many, many countries that were caught up in the conflict. But when it was all said and done, uh, though those battles had been fought by millions of, of people, uh, when all was said and done, the Japanese surrendered through a figurehead, through a representative. And so the Japanese ambassador aboard the USS Missouri 
uh, wrote the formal declaration of surrender, which was received by an American general, each representative of the, uh, the opposing forces. When the forces came home, of course, they were greeted with victory parades because they'd fought the battles, but they'd fought them on behalf of their nations. And so the people came out to greet the returning heroes, those who had fought for their freedom. And the people who didn't go share in the benefits of the victories that these brave soldiers have won for them in the field of conflict. And so the victory of some becomes the victory of many. And we see this also in sport. Uh, why is it that people are so attached to sport? You'd think sometimes the way people carry on that they've been out there playing themselves. But when the Richmond Football Club wins a premiership, they're not just playing for themselves, they're playing for the club, but the club represents the aspirations of a whole bunch of supporters and the victory isn't complete until the club's gone and, gone and shown off the premiership trophy to the members and supporters who, who finance the club to exist at all. And so they become representatives of the hopes and the dreams and the, the emotions of their vast supporter base. The glory of victory is shared. So how can we sing of Israel's king? Psalm 2 speaks of Israel's king being the world's true king. And we've seen already that when we make Israel's king our king, when we repent of our sins and turn to, to the Lord Jesus, Israel's true king, uh, we find forgiveness and salvation. We find that his victory becomes ours, his victory over sin and death and the grave, over the powers of hell. His victory becomes ours when we're found in Christ by faith. We can say, and it's a biblical principle, that all that belongs to the king, he shares with his people. So the military spoils of the conquests back in those days were shared, the wealth was shared with the people to an extent. Uh, Jesus, the, the true king, shares the benefits of his victory with his people. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we can pray and sing Psalm 21 in Christ, but only in Christ. It's become ours because of his victory. Christ's victory becomes ours and the benefits of Christ's victory become ours. And so this scripture becomes ours to sing and pray and rejoice in. Now, Peter said that David was serving not himself, but us when he wrote these words. Have a look at Psalm 21, 2 to 5 and ask yourself, who but Jesus could fulfill these things? You've given him his heart's desire. Well, David's heart wandered all over the place, just like ours. Who but Jesus had a heart that was completely set on doing God's will, as we find in John 6 and Hebrews 10. You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him length of days forever and ever. That was never true of David. He died and he was buried. This is a foretaste of the resurrection of the ultimate victory from sin and death in the grave that was only won in our Lord Jesus. Verse 5 of Psalm 21, his glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. That's the language that's used in the New Testament to describe the Lord Jesus' exaltation and his glorification. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 2. But verses 8 to 12, this look ahead, this confidence in future victory, these things only make sense in Christ. And they speak of the complete destruction of all God's enemies, of all who hate him. Because you see, the thing is, hatred of God is reflected in hatred of his king. To hate one is to hate the other. 
We've seen that in Psalm 2. But hatred's of God, hatred of God's king uh, is reflected in hatred of God's people, of, king, of the king's people. Jesus says, if they've hated me, they'll hate you too. If they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. Christians are persecuted because of Jesus, their king. And so this judgment is coming and it will be complete. It will be total. It will be final. Because you see, out of love, out of steadfast covenant love for his people, God wants to ensure their eternal security and they will not be safe until all opposition is defeated, finally, irrevocably. So verse, Psalm 21 verse 9, You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Now that's an awful picture. It's one that many people shy away from. There's lots of Christians who simply refuse to preach judgment now. But it's coming. And judgment isn't just negative because God will judge against his, the, the, the rebels, but he judges in favour of his people because of his steadfast love. But this is, it's just in scripture, it has to be taught because it's there. And God's kingship will not be challenged forever. He will not suffer rebels forever. He will deal with them. And amongst the reasons for that is because he will ensure his people's security when he does. This is the language that the New Testament uses over and over again. Because Jesus is coming, uh, Psalm 21 looks ahead to the day when Yahweh appears. The New Testament says that Yahweh will appear in the person of the Lord Jesus. And so if, if you've looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read there of the righteous judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God which is exercised uh, to, to re-establish his unchallenged rule in the universe. The, because he considers it just to repay those who have caused suffering to his people on whom he set his steadfast love. And all of this will come about when Jesus returns in glory and in power. He came the first time in humility. He will come the next time in unmistakable power. And on that day, accounts will be settled and eternal destinies will be decided and it will be perfectly fair. There will be no injustice on that day and God's justice will be unchallenged in eternity. What we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is nothing other than God's strength and his steadfast love. His steadfast love for those who've joined themselves to him and his cause through his kingly son who we now know to be the Lord Jesus. But his strength, his unchallenged strength in dealing fully and finally with all who persist in rebelling. But that punishment's not inevitable. It doesn't have to be that way. We've already seen in Psalm 2 that the way to security, the way to forgiveness and salvation is to kiss the sun, to submit, to admit defeat and say, I can't do it without you, to, to fall at your knees and to kiss the feet of the one who deserves your worship, the true King, the Lord Jesus. And Psalm, 20, Psalm 2 finishes with this great thought, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So to find refuge in God's kingly son, that's the way of safety. That's the way of escape of God's wrath. We choose him now so that we can have confidence in that coming day. And so as Psalm 21 finishes, we find in verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. 
to say of God, be exalted. It, it's a it's an acclamation. It, it's praise. It, it's almost a request. Rise up. Uh, it, it means establish your unchallenged reign. It means we're waiting for it. Come on, bring it on, please, God. And that's the sort of thing we're taught to pray in the New Testament. Your kingdom come, Jesus says. Pray your kingdom come in Matthew 6. And so Psalm 21 teaches us as God's new covenant people that in Christ we can look back. We can give thanks for past victories in days of trouble. We've all had them, haven't we? If you're an honest person, you'll look back and say, I sought your help, God, in that time of challenge, in that time of trial and trouble. And, uh, and when we endure, we learn things that will equip us for the next time. But we can all of us look back. But above all, we look back to the fact that that victory has been won over sin. And so my sins and your sins were paid for on the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus. And we can look back to his triumph in the resurrection and say, he paid the price. I know my sins are forgiven. I know in him I can stand the test of judgment day. So we give thanks for those past victories. And that encourages us to look ahead to the future full of hope. Because we know that there is going to come a day when accounts will be settled, where, where God's justice will be displayed unmistakably he will judge in favor of his covenant people and he will punish forever those who've persisted in their rebellion it's that hope grounded in the victory of the past that enables us to press on into an uncertain future with confidence encourage not giving way to doubt or despair or fear you know there's big changes going on around us all the time we've had legislation passed in the victorian parliament only in this past week that makes prayer potentially a criminal offence, uh, that makes parenting um, a, a fraught task, uh, that makes pastoral counsel potentially quite dangerous. What do we do? Do we give in to fear and despair? No, we say that um, Christians around the world through centuries have been putting up with, with, um, with opposition. And the opposition is not really to us, it's to God fundamentally. But we look ahead with the psalmist and with God's ancient people and with God's people of every generation, hopeful that because of the triumph of the Lord Jesus, that he will come again one day and the victory of God and the day of salvation will be complete. God's strength will be celebrated in an eternal song. And so we would pray the last prayer of the Bible. Revelation 22, the Lord Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And the answer is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great, these true and powerful words. We thank you that in Christ they've become words that we can live by. We can sing and rejoice in. There's parts of them that, that are disturbing and concerning as we read about this, this final judgment, this uh, consuming of those who persist in rebellion against you. I pray that if there's anyone watching or listening to this now, they would realise that that they can't continue to live with you as their enemy, uh, that they must simply submit uh, to give up fighting and to put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus who loved them and gave himself for them. But we thank you that those of us who have put our trust in you can face whatever the future holds uh, with confidence in you, uh, a God who will appear one day. You will return and, uh, 
and establish your reign of justice and peace on the earth where there'll be no more that molests us or troubles us or, or, or causes us to fear. Uh, we, we look ahead to that day with longing and so we would pray with the saints of all the ages, even so come Lord Jesus, please come and establish uh, God's eternal kingdom here on earth and until that day, keep us joyful in hope, keep us patient in times of trouble and keep us faithful in prayer. We pray all these things in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you and I'll see you again as soon as I'm allowed. Okay, see you. <laughs>